This podcast contains potentially sensitive topics, drug use, and strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Ronnie, one night, he's standing in this room packed with homeless people, and he's got this slip in his hand, which told me, oh, he's got a place to go tonight, you know. Anyway, Ronnie's smiling at me, and I think, uh-oh. He goes, Pastor Rick, ain't I beautiful? And I go, Ronnie, yes, you're beautiful. <laughs> Knowing full well that everybody in the room was going to snicker. And I thought I was done, you know. And he goes, then hug me. So I, I come up next to him, I kind of sidle up to be next to him and give him a buddy hug around one shoulder. And he comes, leans down over me, because he's like 6'6", six, six, you know. His face poking into my face, and he kisses me on the cheek, and off he goes, right? Everybody's like, ah. You know? And I'm like patting myself on the back, thinking, this was really a God moment right here, you know. And later I kind of thought, Rick, who was being ugly in that situation? You know, this is not right. I should not feel that way that I need to keep Ronnie at arm's length. God doesn't love people like that. He loves people fully. If you live in Seattle, I don't need to tell you that homelessness has become extremely visible. We see folks struggling in our parks, on the sidewalks, at freeway off-ramps, and more. Shelter is being sought wherever there is cover from the rain. Abandoned buildings, roof overhangs, overpasses, and bridges are home to those without basic needs being met. With approximately 40,000 people experiencing homelessness in King County and 15,000 in Seattle, numbers that are growing each year, it can feel like the community is losing its ability to even know how to address the issue and, in turn, losing hope. We are constantly being reminded of the negative, from media coverage right down to dinner table conversations. The focus is overwhelmingly centered on what is not working. But what is less known or less visible to the housed community are the positives, such as the multitude of services provided to those struggling. To be clear, there is not nearly enough being done. But it is important to know that a lot is being done. There are a great number of people, organizations, and governmental agencies doing smart and heart-centered work every single day to meet the needs of those experiencing homelessness. The truth is, Seattle is not dying. Far from it. Rather, it is trying to adjust to what has become a humanitarian crisis in this city. We are in the process of getting our feet back under us, centering ourselves, so that we can know how to respond. And in that response, each of us has a choice. Do we step away and throw our hands up, or do we step closer and lend a hand? How we decide is based a great deal on the information influencing us, how we see the issue, and the voices we choose to hear. Today we're talking with Reverend Rick Reynolds, He has spent most of his life stepping closer, getting to know those struggling. For nearly 40 years, he worked at the nonprofit Operation Nightwatch, most of that time as the executive director, engaging in direct action for those in need. Here is my conversation with Pastor Rick. You know, I want to explain first before we jump into kind of this back and forth conversation is that the point of You Know Me Now is not just to hear what someone's views are, 
but to actually go back further and understand a little bit about them so that we might get a sense of why they have these views now at, uh, well, how old are you? 70, you said? I'll be 70 this month. So, um, so I would start by asking, like, who was Rick when he was five years old? Like, some of your earliest memories, and where did you grow up, and just... Okay, so, well, you know, I was, uh, grew up in Lily White Edmonds Woodway, Washington, so uh, my dad was a school principal, my mom was, yeah, pretty much stay at home. So anyway, a very religious family. When you say very religious family, how, tell me a little bit about, like, what does that mean to you? That meant... Uh, Sunday school and church every Sunday. My parents were all in on helping out. Uh, and then Sunday night, church service again. And then Wednesday night during the school year, there'd be activities for kids. So it was, it was like really religious. But I think my, my parents had a social conscience. Uh, they weren't like, you know, when you think about religious people, sometimes you think about Evangelicals that don't put it together with, you know, how they how they behave towards others, and my parents were very kindly disposed towards everybody. And my dad grew up urban poor. He was his his dad was a WPA worker in the Depression, and my mom came from uh, rural uh, Idaho, but she was very much interested in what was going on in the world, and that's why she didn't stay in Idaho. You know. She was happy she, to get out of she there. She wanted a bigger room. She wanted a bigger room. I remember uh, something that happened uh, when I was in grade school. There was a, a local uh, community club. I won't, I won't name it because I'm sure they've changed their policy. But uh, there was one African-American family in the community at that time. It was a, a, a doctor, a black doctor. And they applied to be members of this community club, which was basically just a pool, you know, and they were denied membership in this community club. And I don't know what the adult reasons were at the time, but I remember my dad saying he would never join that community club because of that denial, which was very, you know, I think progressive for the time. But I also <laughs> wondered if he, we would have probably not joined it either way because my dad was also very cheap. <laughs> he was one of those Depression-era babies straightening out the nails after he pulled them, you know, so he could reuse yeah. them. Yeah, but also consistent with kind of your family values, looking for what was just. Yeah. Do you think that came from studying their religion, or do you think it came from somewhere deeper inside of them? That's a I know that's a big question, because well, you can ask that question about a lot of people who, who are religious, and might not follow those values, and vice versa, right? People that are not religious but have... Yeah, you can read Scripture a lot of different ways, you know. <laughs> and uh, I think my parents, uh, they're Methodists, right? So they believe that uh, reason is a part of how we understand what God's doing in the world, right? And I, I was really at a very young age interested in what was going on with the civil rights movement. I, I think I was about third, fourth grade. A, a buddy of mine in the neighborhood and I decided to make a newspaper. It was all how to make money, right? We had two issues. We'd sit there and watch the news, and then we'd like try to dumb it down to three lines and type it on my mom's antique royal manual typewriter with 
you know, 10 pages of carbon paper underneath it. But I remember just watching the civil rights movement and and trying to get that that down, you know, into a few lines and, and writing about whatever was current and watching on the news people screaming at schoolgirls, you know, and that really profoundly affected me. I grew up in a, just an incredibly loving environment, you know. Seeing that visual sight of hatred happening, it just breaks me to think about, you know. How can there be that kind of hate? You know, it's, it's irrational. It's horrible. How do you answer that question for yourself, like, like when you think about that hatred? Like, what, like you know, do you, do you have a place to put all that? No, I I don't hang on to it. I have to um, push it away because I don't think I don't think hanging on to it or putting it someplace is helpful. <laughs> Love overcomes hatred, right? I find great comfort in that, um, and it, it it hatred doesn't have the final say over who we are as human beings. People ask Margaret Mead, the great anthropologist anthropologist, what sign uh, of human civilization, you know, what determines what's human? And, and when you've, you're on an archaeological dig, what, what tells you that this is a human habitation? And she says, if I find, sorry, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a crier. Uh, if, if she finds a healed femur, then she knows they took care of each other. That's right. That's all that matters to me. How can we take care of each other? How can we do a better job of taking care of each other? You know, and instead of being so concerned about whether I'm going to survive or not, and thinking that if I survive, you know, that I'm going to survive at the expense of another human, you know, that's how we kind of orient ourselves is there's got to be winners and losers, right? And it's not that way. Yeah. As opposed to a rising tide where we all, where we all win. Yep. It feels like just listening already to this short bit that you, you were pretty influenced by your parents as far as how you moved through the world and, and so. structured my, your life. My mom especially was good about, I mean, of course at the time, <laughs> didn't, didn't really necessarily appreciate it, but she would like drag us around to... Oh, go visit people in a nursing home or stop by and see somebody that's sick or do some other kind of charitable task. Uh, I was shocked when she said we weren't going to have the usual Thanksgiving. I think I was about 12 or 13. And she made arrangements for us to come down to what was then called the Millionaire Club, Uplift Northwest now. And we went down there. Uh, on Thanksgiving Day, and um, I rolled up napkins and handed them to indigents coming through the line for a Thanksgiving meal at the Millionaire Club, you know. And it's like, I don't know why she did that. I think she was trying to introduce the idea that there was something more than us watching football and sitting around the house. You know, I think it can go both ways, right? It could be that I could have said, oh, I don't want anything to do with this, or Here's another world, isn't this interesting, you know? And I think that's the way I was bent from the beginning, was 
these are this is a different life than I've ever experienced, and I like it. <laughs> yeah, and also I think there's truth in the fact that we we do get good at what we do a lot of. Like if we do something, yeah, quite a bit, we end up getting good at it. And maybe your mother was beginning that practice of reaching out to others and doing it over and over, so that yeah. you know you get good at it. Well, and then my um, my first job out of college was kind of very much parallel with my future jobs. I uh, When Lori and I got married, uh, a friend of ours invited us to go with a small group of young adults from uh, a church to say, you know, to do like a gospel sing-along in a nursing home. And this was like a huge inner-city nursing home. And it had uh, people that had been released from Western State Hospital people that were turned out from Eastern State Hospital, Spokane area. And then also, it was on the pipeline from Skid Road. So people that were living in the flop houses downtown at that time, who could no longer take care of themselves, sometimes from age, sometimes from alcohol, sometimes from mental health, or a combination of those three things. And so it wasn't you know, a nursing home with little old ladies knitting and painting. You know, it was it was hardcore, mentally ill people, people with uh, wet brain, uh, skid road types, and then the little old ladies. It was just an amazing milieu. So I was so intrigued with this population of people at this nursing home where I was volunteering on Sunday morning for an hour, just playing guitar and singing old gospel hymns, and then somebody would give a five-minute sermon, you know, and that was it. And sometimes one of the residents would stand up and sing a solo for us. It was hilarious, you know. And we'd have to remind them that pistol-packing mama is not appropriate for church, you know. <laughs> anyway, so I quit my job, my, my college job, which had been at Sears. I started working at, at the nursing home. Uh, that I was volunteering at. They hired me. It was like a weird thing. I quit my job at Sears, and three weeks later, I was working at the dream job. It was like, this is why I left Sears. Yeah. Did you know, did you have a path at that point? Like, you're at Sears, you quit, you go to the nursing home, but are you still moving towards a direction at that point? The nursing home, because of the connection with Skid Road, was contiguous with Nightwatch. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't see far enough ahead to see anything related to Nightwatch because I wasn't clergy, and at the time, Nightwatch was basically clergy going out on the street. Well, I was interested in it. I knew about it, but I wasn't clergy. and I, No intention in a million years of, you know, going to seminary and good grief, pastoring at a church for 12 years, so... It just was beyond me. But, uh, you know, you look back over it and you go, yeah, it was contiguous, right? Stepping stones. Yep. So so you basically you're just interested in helping people at that point oh, yeah. with your social. Yeah. So what's, what's the, there, there's a moment then of a, a leap that happens for you where you decide you are going to become uh, clergy. You're going to go into seminary school. Yeah, the church that I was attending at the time, they decided to hire an associate minister. And I made the jump to decide to apply, which I didn't I didn't get the job, which was, you know, like disappointing at the time. 
but um, the guy that they hired uh, didn't last very long, you know. And um, so I applied for the second round a year and a half later. And by this time, then I started taking um, seminary classes, graduate level seminary classes. Yeah, so the, the church hired me, and immediately I went out and signed up with Operation Nightwatch to be one of the street ministers. So that was the fall of 1981. And when did they start the outreach? Nightwatch. Uh, yeah, when did Night, Nightwatch? Nightwatch started in 1967, and it was a just a group of clergy uh, taking turns volunteering on the street every night of the of the year. You know, they'd cover every night somehow. You know, so I took I took one or two nights. And 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 the task was to just go out on the street. Be present, you know. And so the way I was trained, and things have changed a lot, but there were a lot of these low-dive bars around downtown Seattle. And uh, Norm Riggins, who was the original uh, Night Watch uh, paid director, um, we were founded by uh, Reverend Bud Palmberg. But Norm Riggins trained me. You just went from bar to bar to bar, and you'd hang out for an hour, see what happens, you know. And people would talk to you like, what the hell are you doing here? You know, you'd be wearing a clerical collar. And uh, uh, the, the standard Nightwatch answer at that time was, well, we haven't seen you in church lately, so now we're coming to you. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'd go to all these dive bars, which was a great experience for uh, you know, 26, 27 years old. Yeah, I bet, I bet those experiences uh, also come back to you. Those places are gone now. You know, uh, Nightwatch maintained a kind of a little list, which I just kicked myself all the time. I wish I'd held on to it. You know, it was like a list of a, like 125 little hole-in-the-wall drinking establishments in downtown Seattle that have all been displaced or upgraded to swanky, you know. And these were places where poor people that lived downtown at the time could find some company, you know. Was was that outreach successful? Uh, I don't, th- I think yes and no. Um, the yes is, I think a lot of clergy got educated about real life. And I think that impact it's hard to measure, but I think it's real. I think I know definitely from my own work, it made a huge difference. And, um, but you know, you'd run into somebody in crisis. Okay, so let's say uh, I got a call one night from a desk clerk at at a downtown hotel saying, "Hey, there's two kids here that need a room, but I can't rent to them because they're both minors, as brother and sister. Can you come talk to them?" And so. I, I went over like it was one thirty in the morning when I got there, and uh, they were in the lobby. And the story they gave was completely believable, but still fantastic. And that was our parents were gone, uh, and so we took the car down to Portland to visit friends. And while we were down there, we blew up the engine, and so they put us on the bus to Seattle. But we didn't get here in time to get a bus to Maple Valley where we live. So they weren't homeless, but they were stuck, and their parents were still gone. So I, uh, I said, okay, well, I'll run you home. You know, well, it was like three o'clock in the morning or so when I got them to their house. I got home at like four. <laughs> you know, I can't imagine what my wife was thinking. Yeah, I gotta say, I love how you answered the question. You know, was it successful? Did it did it uh, accomplish it? Because you you answered it 
in a way that I believe is true for all outreach. And that is, the assumption is that we're talking about, was it successful for the people that you were meeting, like the person sitting on that bar stool? But you answered it instead, that it informed you, that yeah. you actually grew from oh. it. And I think, that's a, I think that's a standard result from people reaching out and doing things. You, you have in mind uh, impacting people around you for good, right, when you go out and do something like that. But I got way more out of it than they did. I mean, it changed me, and it continues to change me as I reflect on my life and continue to engage with the world. You know, it's not like you retire and you're suddenly... Hang that suit up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't do what I was doing, but I'm still involved with homeless people or mentally ill people or hungry people, you know. So that, that won't change. Let's pick up where, we, where you were, yeah. which is that you started to volunteer at um, Nightwatch. Yeah. So my church hired me initially half-time, and then I worked full-time. And I'd been there 12 years. I just was, felt ready for a change. I loved the church, but it was, it's a strain being pastor of a smaller congregation. You know, it all falls on you eventually, you know. So I called... Norm Riggins, the guy that had trained me for Nightwatch, to say, hey, can we get together and talk? And I told him what was going on, and he said, you should come have my job. I literally got, got hired, you know, one interview and I was in, and I started like that spring. And the flaw in the system that they had then was that you don't get to know people. You don't get to know the systems you don't get to know the individuals on the street. You know, going out once a month is not enough. And so uh, it was kind of the whole program of Nightwatch was sort of limping along with all these volunteers not really knowing what they were doing out there. And so that was one of the really gratifying things after I came to Nightwatch was to be able to have the resources to hire ministers that did nothing but that full time, you know, yeah. because they could. They knew how to respond and everything. Rick, in the in the beginning of Nightwatch, and the, with with uh, the presence of going into into bars and and striking up conversations with folks, that wasn't that wasn't relegated to just people that were suffering through homelessness. Oh no, not at all. Those were those were just right people living life that yep. found themselves in a bar and and then through story and exchange, got to know each other. Deacon Joe Curtis was the uh, deacon for the homeless at St. James Cathedral. And he told a story uh, I really liked of him being in a bar on Pike Pine area, you know, and this little old lady in the corner, you know, and you go, what are you doing here? You seem out of place. And she goes, do you see that light in the building across the street on this fourth floor. That's my unit. I just don't want to be alone at night, you know. But she wasn't homeless, you know. It's just the bar was a place to gather to be with other people. And So when did, was it under your watch that Night Watch morphed more towards addressing the issue of homelessness? Well, uh, morphed more, but it was already pointed that direction. So when I came to Night Watch as director then, see, I, I, I waltzed in there in 1994, and um, there were still people on the board that were not sure that we should be doing food and shelter. You know, that seemed really impossible. 
And and in many ways it was impossible, but we did it anyway, you know. So so we grew into what was right in front of us. I mean, that was what the need was. And I, I remember, you know, Norm saying, we're not getting into the bars enough. I go, Norm, what bars would you go in? They're closing down as fast as these low-income places are being, uh, you know, shut down. The low-income housing was being sold to redeveloped and upgraded to make it impossible for poor people. So anyway, yeah, I think we just went with what the perceived need of the street was, right? Mm -hmm. you know? But there was, at some point, the first feed, right? Like there was a... a okay, so when, when I came to Nightwatch, they were feeding people. They'd been feeding people since the 80s, but the food was like instant cup of soups, you know, and they had no kitchen. They had a crock pot when they got to that point. And then when I came, they had maybe two crock pots, and then we had four crock pots. They were doing these, you know, simple meals, simple, I mean, like, we're talking like dumping all the Campbell's soup that you've got into one pot, you know, and heating it up. And it was really, I thought, this is dumb. If we're going to do food, let's do it well. So I got us signed up with Northwest Harvest and Food Lifeline, and we eventually were able to get a kitchen that had like a residential-sized stove and and could upgrade the food service. So that was, you know, and then we started getting more and more volunteers. So we originally, you know, I think when I first started at Nightwatch, maybe had 20 volunteers and 1.5 employees, and that was it. And how often were you, was it once a week you were giving food out? Every night. Every night. Every night. Every single night. And so I was there during the daytime. So I would like, at four o'clock, whatever I was doing, I would just stop and I'd start chopping up chicken carcasses for chicken soup, you know, and I, it was the same menu every night. And we'd always have like, you know, groups that would come in with sandwiches and it was kind of kind of crazy. Yeah. And were you just uh, like you, you left being a, uh, the pastor at a church for 12 years. Yeah. Now you're doing this direct outreach. Are you still mixing in all of your kind of spiritual? Uh, I mean, how is that morphing for you? Because it's a... Well, okay. So I did a lot of speaking engagements in a year. You know, so I wasn't preaching like on a Sunday morning very often, but I. I but you're still sharing the yeah, message. Yeah, so I'd go out and and talk about. I, I prefer to think of it as universal spiritual truth. You know, scriptural in part, but mostly life experience. This is what I see and what I've learned. You know, and and my. This is kind of like my uh, framing story for my whole time at Nightwatch was something that happened to me my uh, first year on the job i i you know there'd be these nights where we'd have like 80 90 people looking for shelter and not be able to get everybody in and we had characters that the shelters wouldn't serve anymore and one of them was a guy named ronnie ronnie was stereotypical mentally ill alcoholic really out of control we couldn't get him inside because the shelters we were calling the shelters to get him placed, and he'd, they'd say, don't send him here anymore. He's too disruptive. And and so we, he'd have to take a blanket, and he, of course he wasn't very happy about it, but I talked to him very quietly because I, was, I wasn't going to yell at him. He was already yelling. Uh, De-escalation really works, you know. You parents out there, pay attention. And um, anyway, so Ronnie, one night, he's standing in this room packed with homeless people, and he's got this slip in his hand, which told me, oh, he's got a place to go tonight, you know. Anyway, Ronnie's smiling at me, and I think, uh-oh. 
He goes, uh, Pastor Rick, ain't I beautiful? And I go, Ronnie, yes, you're beautiful. <laughs> Knowing full well that everybody in the room was going to snicker. And, uh, and I thought I was done, you know. And he goes, then hug me. So I, I come up next to him. I kind of sidle up to be next to him and give him a buddy hug around one shoulder. And he comes, leans down over me because he's like 6'6", you know. Leans down over me, his face poking into my face in the clinch, you know. And he kisses me on the cheek and off he goes, right? Everybody's like, ah. <laughs> and I'm like patting myself on the back thinking, this was really a God moment right here, you know. And later I kind of thought, you know, that little questioning self-doubt is like, Rick, who was being ugly in that situation, you know? It's like, I got it. You know, this is not right. I should not feel that way that I need to keep Ronnie at arm's length. God doesn't love people like that. He loves people fully, really, from the heart, embracing us, you know? So then uh, that's the challenge to myself is to get over my, my own professional sense of self and, and just love people. That's the, that's the challenge. But then I realize it's not just a challenge for directors of homeless programs, right? We all have people that are difficult to love in our life. There's no getting around it. And um, it doesn't matter if you love the people that are like you and that are easy to love. Show me somebody that can love people that are difficult people. You know, and that is, we all can think of a face or a name of somebody that we have a hard time loving. But it doesn't matter if you love everybody else. You got to love that person. That's the, that's the challenge. And it's not just, you know, learning how to love some homeless guy, but sometimes it's a family member or neighbor or somebody. So that, that changed my whole approach, you know. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's, and it's you can feel the truth in that. Yeah. You know, I, 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 there's a similar or paralleling thought of when you're, when you're uh, well, be, well beyond your means, you have, you, have, you have everything you need and you're living fat and happy and then you, you do something for somebody and you feel good about it, you're, you know, yourself. It's pretty easy to be compassionate and nice when you're having everything met in your life. Right. You know, yeah. The challenges is, is the challenges to, you know, if you if you have the right perspective, we're all playing with house money, right? So what's going to happen? You know, I mean, where's the risk? I want to be able to. I want to be able to take the risk of falling flat on my face and maybe suffering alongside of people. You know, ideally, I mean, I don't know if I get the guts to do it or not. But okay. I don't know if this is this conversation, but I got to say, I think for me, the way you just articulated that is at the very kind of the, the center nut of the question that we ask ourselves in life. Like, am I going to act on that little voice inside of me that knows what I'm supposed to be doing? Or am I going to listen to the other voice, which is, you know, a combination of FOMO and fear and just all the things that, well, if I, if I really let this all go, I'm going to go into a free fall and then I'm just, I'm just going to miss it all and my one shot. I think if we could all learn to act on what you just said, I think the world would take care of itself. I think we've got to stay 
reality based at some level though i mean okay so the story that comes to mind is from the gospel at the risk of sounding too religious here okay go for it the rich dude comes to jesus and says you know what must i do to be okay right and jesus said well love god love your neighbor nutshell right and the the rich dude says i've been doing that and Jesus says, okay, then give away everything you've got to the poor and come follow me, right? At that point, the rich man turns away. He's sad because he's got too much money. He's too, you know, he wants to be self-reliant. He wants to be, you know, there's no level of trust in the unknowns. And I think, you know, when are you going to ever feel secure in this life? You could have millions of dollars in the bank, and you're still restless. Who was the most unsettled person in the Old Testament? It was Pharaoh. Isn't that ironic? We don't even know his name, but we know the two, uh, the names of the, the, the two midwives that were del- supposed to kill the babies. We know their names, but Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's uncertain if he's going to be okay or not. He doesn't want to let the people go. He wants to demand more bricks, you know. He's he's not sure he's going to be okay. Isn't that ironic? It is ironic. But you just but earlier you had said to me, let's keep a little reality in it, right? Let's, yeah, yeah. Like so, like I want to follow back up on that. Like, what is the reality? Because I yeah. think that is the he turned away. Yeah. Right. Yep. And I think and I, okay, this is all right. This might all get edited out, but that's okay. Uh, you know, recovering Catholic, right? Yeah, yeah and um, got my dose of nuns and Jesuits right. basically up till college. Yeah. So, and I have a very hard time not seeing the hypocrisy. Oh. Like, like I want to say to myself, look, if I really believe, then what the fuck? Yeah. You know, we are, it's like, um, I don't want to be judgmental here by saying this because it's more complicated than just saying this, but it's the fish symbol on the back of the Mercedes. I think... I think how how can we hold those two things at the same time when we see people suffering and really, really suffering. And, and you know, we both have seen that uh, from the homeless community and yet hold on to so many riches. Yeah. Uh, while, while, and we know that, that the money that we hold on to in banks could make a profound difference. And we make a choice, and we and we turn away. I, I really wrestle with that. It's a it's a good thing to wrestle with, and it's a family discussion that we have. Is like, do we have enough? I don't know. I mean, I've worked sub Seattle wages my whole life, and uh, you know, I went for five or six years when Nightwatch didn't put into the retirement fund and that kind of stuff. So, here's how we compromise. We have homeless people that come and stay with us. Yeah. I've got a guy in my basement that's been with us 13 years now. Yeah. You know, and that's been, it's been a blessing for him and it's been a blessing for us because now he's been able to pay rent, you know. So, I don't know. I, it's a struggle. You know, here's how, I mean, when I read the Old Testament, especially, there's a lot of uh, weight put on ethical living that's apart from piety, God says, what do I care about uh, bulls and, and lambs? I don't care about sacrifice. I don't care about fasting. 
What I want to see is, are you paying your workers? You know, those are the foundational issues that underlie homelessness, right? It's in, in economic injustice. And don't, don't be coming to church and worshiping when you have withheld wages from your workers, right? And haven't shared opportunity with people. Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of people that uh, reject the church, and maybe rightly so, I'll say, in favor of doing what's most important. And um, I struggle with the same things. But, you know, I think part of, part of the, the good thing is that's why we need each other, Different the differences, right? If you can get along with people who think the same way you do all the time, what is that? What credit is there? But learn how to struggle through the, the, it, these hard issues with people that don't agree with you. You know, you still belong to each other. You still got to learn how to love them. You know? Yeah. Okay, so let's, let's maybe a little bit of time on um, the power of relationship because I, I feel like that is something that you've spent your, you know, your life's work yeah. putting together. Have there been people you've met that have influenced you with profound, you know, profoundly that you can think of to share about? Have there been people in the street that you've met that have, you know, you're, you mentioned uh, the experience of getting the hug giving the hug, right? Like, and the reason I'm asking that is because I firmly believe the answer for addressing homelessness really has to come from the community. I, of course, there's lots of mitigating circumstances such as land prices and mental health and drug rehab and all of these things that apply pressure. But until, until we all kind of wake up to the suffering that people are experiencing on the street, um, it doesn't feel like the needle's going to move. It's just, it just keeps sliding in the direction it's going. Well, I mean, I've had a lot of interactions with homeless people that have uh, inspired me and given me insight into my, myself and into the world in general, you know. I, I, got, I fell into this thing of uh, taking pizzas to a homeless camp. So at this homeless camp, you know, there's this people and their dogs and their stories. Just amazing how folks can end up in a place, you know. There's there's as many different ways to become homeless as a person could imagine. But anyway, this 30-year-old and his 60-year-old mother were living together in this camp, and they fled domestic violence situation, and all they had was their dog. The dog was like, you know, a two-pound fluffy thing, cute as could be. And I had gotten to know them, and the next week... When I came into the camp, one of the other campers said, oh, I don't remember the guy's name, Brian. Brian's dog got killed. It's like, what? And the whole camp was in grief. They were on a church property. There was They couldn't throw it in the garbage. They couldn't bury it there. And the person goes, it's $150 for the vet to take care of it. My first reaction was really grim it was like they're trying to sucker me right i don't have money for this i don't have money at night watch i and i i got my own money in my pocket but 150 bucks is kind of steep well then they told me we've already collected 50 from the campers wow so i said let me think about it for a day so i, I came home i threw it up on facebook here's the situation i told the story and a friend of mine immediately texted me on my cell phone saying i'll I'll kick in $50 too. And I thought, okay. 
If they kick in 50, the camp's got 50. I'll match that. $50 I can afford. So I went to the back to the camp the next day. We got the remains of the dog in the tent, wrapped up in plastic, and we took it to the vet uh, to for disposal. You know, while I was there, I was kind of reflecting on my own hard-heartedness. And we're like, literally like on the sidewalk outside the veterinary office. And we're just like falling into each other's arms weeping because it's like, who hasn't lost anybody, you know? This dog wasn't just about a pet being killed. It was more than that. It was their whole entire life, giving up their house, moving into a tent city, no furniture, none of their possessions. The dog was the only link with their past. It was heartbreaking and mutually felt then in that moment. And I think, yeah, it's about loss for everybody. Part of the community is broken. And if one part suffers, we all suffer. It seems to me that's fair, right? It's a, it's a shared suffering. But, you know, these moments that I have, there's also these notes of joy that happen, you know, like uh, a guy in line at night watch, and I'm just like out there kind of doing my my uh, maitre d' thing, you know, talking to people and finding out what's going on. And uh, he introduced himself to me and told me, I've washed out of nine recovery programs. And he said to me that night, something I've never forgotten, Pastor Rick, I've determined that never again in my life will I own a lawnmower. It's kind of a random thing, but I think there was a point to it, and that is life is more than what we own, right? It's an, it was an in, his way of saying that. It was his way of acknowledging that he could be all right even without a lawnmower, Right. Letting and go of the material. Letting go of the material. And, you know, I said, you know, Walt, Walt if, you're, if you're willing to give it another try, let's move you into the building, you know. We got our room open. So he came, he showed up the next day, which is extraordinary, too. I mean, that didn't always happen. And I gave him an application, one-page form, and he filled it out. And he listed um, a local, uh, Jim McDermott, uh, as one of his references. So uh, I thought, well, I got to do diligence. So I called Jim McDermott's office, and they said, oh, yeah, Walt, he's a great guy. You should help him. He's been coming around trying to get our help with getting him inside. It's like, wow, what do you know? You know, like, This guy is a, is a doorway drinker, like the most toxic drunk I've ever met. He moved into the building in three months, he totally wrecked his unit. Uh, no bodily function control. I find him passed out with a towel around himself in the hallway. I remember the looking into his face as the as the medics hauled him out yet again uh, to take him to the hospital. And he, uh, I looked at his face and I thought, I am never going to see this man alive again. And uh, he called me a week later, and he said, Rick, I cracked a vertebrae in my back, and they told me I could have surgery or I could go into traction for, 90, or for 30 days. So I've decided to go in traction. So. And I go up there with Father Kim. He's an Episcopal priest I used to go hang with. Um, just say, 
how's it going, Walt? You know, he'd crack a joke, and I and we talked to him about his situation. I told him what was going on. You're not going to get kicked out. You know, we're going to keep you. And uh, you mind if I say a prayer for you? And the next week, uh, he goes, guess what? I prayed myself. It's like, okay. Next week after that, he's like a different guy. Fourth week, he gets out. He comes back to Night Watch. He's like, I don't know why I was doing that to myself. Stone cold sober the rest of his life. He ha- he had a moment of clarity. And uh, and he went on, so he was became active with the Coast Guard Auxiliary. Uh, he had keys to the West Seattle Lighthouse. He gave tours. He was volunteering for Woodland Park Zoo. He got accepted to chart the tiger cubs when they were newly hatched and uh, started doing home delivery food for the food bank in Ballard, you know. And they eventually hired him. And he moved into his own apartment, moved out of Nightwatch, moved into his own apartment. That's remarkable. And those stories, I want to believe, are waiting for every person that's outside. Well, that's the thing is, you see a resurrection, you think, I want more of that. Yeah. And nobody is beyond hope. That's the other thing. Yeah. That's what Walt taught me. Is there's nobody, because he was as bad off as I've ever seen anybody. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you something else, too. Walt had such a huge debt with the IRS. I, I go, well, how, he was making like a hundred grand a year on a, as a rancher down in the Southwest. Prior. Prior to this, right? And lost it all because of de- drought and, and tax debt. It's like, you don't look at some guy sleeping in a doorway in downtown Seattle and say, I, I bet this guy was really wealthy at some point, you know? Yeah. I, w- I want to dive a little deeper into that because there's something about what you just shared that says within me, if everybody could feel either the transformation or the humanity of each person that's going through something on the street, and that's 40,000 in King County and 15,000 in Seattle, right? That's a lot of people. If we could know that, like really know that, that each person has their story, like does that move us? Would we, I mean, is that important to know that? Yeah, I think the little the little stories that make up the big story are what's most important. I, I don't know what to do with those kind of numbers. The numbers themselves are just overwhelming. I can't do anything about f- 15,000 people or 10,000 people or whatever the number is, but I can maybe do something with one guy in front of me, you know, or keep somebody from falling off the edge even better, you know. I got to tell you my recovery story. So I'm not an alcoholic. I know they all say that, but um, I I decided that I, that I would better be a better helper if I went through a 12-step program. So I went out and got myself a sponsor, and he had me work the steps. We went through the big book together, and I worked the steps over a course of about two years of meeting with him. And then I started, you know, like sponsoring people and helping helping my friends suffering. But one of my sponsees said, Rick, why don't you go to meetings? They always tell us to go to meetings, and you don't go to meetings. I, I don't know why not. So I started going to meetings with one of my sponsees, you know. It's pretty great, you know. It's like, wow, this is really pretty awesome. It's like, uh, it's hard to describe, but um, there's just a sense of 
community in a lot of the 12-step groups, and they all struggle with the kinds of things that we've talked about related to religion or spirituality, but there's no getting around it. AA is a method of spiritual recovery. Now I go to meetings as well as having gone through the big book and sponsoring people's like, I think it's pretty great, you know? Yeah. I feel like I'm a better human being for having going to AA, even though I don't need it from an AA point of view. I think it's made me a more complete person. Yeah, it's a, it's, you said it's a spiritual recovery, and that's the first time I've heard. My dad went to AA, and, I, and I've known lots of folks that have gone to AA. It's the first time, and I know it's faith or higher power based. Yeah. But it's the first time I've actually heard somebody say it's a spiritual recovery, and that resonates with me. I yeah. mean, I think yeah. the bankruptcy of spirituality leads to all these problems we have in our life. Yeah. In some ways, I wish my AA group was a little more like my church, and my church was a little more like my AA group. You know, because it's really hard to stand up. I mean, in a, in a context of an AA group, the understanding is we're all broken. We're all here for the same reason in, in a general way. You know, everybody's suffering from the same spiritual malaise that we all, we're all too absorbed in ourselves and our own needs, desires, and wants. We're in love with our own defects of characters or sin or whatever you want to call it, right? Can you connect that for me real, since you're on this thread to then the issue of homelessness? Like, like how does that inform also our attitudes towards addressing homelessness? And feeling compassion and... Well, you could feel compassion, but then we don't really want to be troubled by it. We don't want to, we don't want to make the sacrifice uh, of trusting uh, other people to, you know, that you're going to wreck the neighborhood by putting that homeless program here, building that low-income housing or whatever it is. Now, Seattle's famous for this, right? We're generally super compassionate, but we're also pretty defensive of our own lifestyle, right? The nimbyism. The nimbyism uh, is, it's breathtaking. I mean, I've heard things at these public meetings, you know, where a proposal's been put forward and they'll have to have public, uh, in co public comment, and it's like, feels very 1960s, you know. I have nothing against these people, but you know, fill in the blank, you know. And are you, and, and do you think that's, can, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my brain is saying when I hear you talk about spiritual fatigue and all that, that I think of that. Like we don't address these very human issues because we're spiritually just either broken or exhausted. And if we were feeling it, like really feeling the vibe of our spirituality, we would actually address these issues in a way that would be more fruitful or move us towards a solution is that, I, that I don't seem, know you know I it's is I, that asking too much I'm see again I, I can see both sides of every topic right one of the things I worry about is uh, advocates that I've known and myself are uh, sometimes not sensitive to the real concerns of a neighborhood you know that was something I tried to bring to night watch was our call to be a good neighbor is not just to our homeless friends we ought to be able to help them without being a threat, or, I mean, a real threat to the neighborhood. So how can we devise programmatic ways to still be actively doing good without consequently doing harm, unintentionally doing harm? 
people. And I think it's possible if you listen and take seriously. I think sometimes what happens is you get battle lines and more worry about winners and losers. And, and, and then you want to say to the people trying to defend their safety in the neighborhood as being hard-hearted or cold. But I totally agree with you. I mean, I think the way that I've talked about it before is if you have a business or a neighborhood that are being impacted by a societal breakdown right. being brought to bear on one person right. or one business. That's not fair. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like we have to find a way to do no harm to both right. and move the whole thing down the field. We have to work towards solutions while not making it more difficult now on another person or business. It was more more acutely focused when I was when Nightwatch was located in, in Belltown downtown and the neighborhood business association, uh, you know, sort of kind of challenging me about helping people that were, you know, drinking and using. And I pointed out that Nightwatch had never served alcohol to anybody. It was the merchants that were doing that, you know, their own members, right? They didn't like hearing that. But we did, like, as an experiment, because uh, they said, well, why don't you breathalyze people? I said, okay, I'll give it a try. So we got a breathalyzer, and we, for two nights in a row, breathalyzed people coming into Nightwatch for help, right? And it pretty much, uh, you know, there was like the maybe 10% that the needle goes, you know, like the cartoons, you know, the guy hitting the sledgehammer and ding, yeah. Maybe 10%. I don't even know if it was that much. And then there was the guys that came in, and they'd blow, and it would tick, but it would not be anywhere close to inebriated. Yeah. And I'd s gently chide them, like, "Oh, you had you had a couple beers after work? Yes, that's fine. You know, come on in. We welcomed everybody that night. You know, yeah. but over fifty percent of our clients had zero breathalyzers. Now the business community was saying." Oh yeah, those guys are using drugs. They don't need any beer. But the this what the uh, cops were saying was, hey, if they're not drinking beer, they're probably not using either. You know, alcohol and drugs usually, go hand in hand. Yeah, they go hand in hand. It's like they get started and then they keep going. Anyway, it was just interesting. And the guys that were making the needle fly over, they were some of the sweetest guys that we served. You know, they were never a problem for us. Now, that doesn't mean they weren't a problem in the neighborhood. I don't know. But I saw plenty of college kids throwing up in the street, uh, kicking homeless guys uh, in the doorways, and peeing anywhere they felt like, you know, after some of the nightclubs closed. Yeah. So, I mean, I... It I gets know. messy. It gets really messy. Yeah. You know? uh, but I do appreciate you saying that we can't, we can't just get on our horse as activists and, and be blind to the harm we're causing to the community in the process. It, 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 has, it has to be a, a conversation that moves everyone forward. Yeah. And, I'm, you know, I, I like would challenge the city about the, the sweeps, though, is that without a, without a, uh, a real option, you know, because what, what we offer when we, if our only offer is shelter, what and services even what we're really offering is institutionalization that's what we're offering let's be real and shelters are an institution it's institutional living 
And you'd think about other institutions and how human beings, how much they like it. The jails, hospitals, nursing homes, mental health facilities, school. None of these institutions are very... User-friendly. User-friendly, but... Uh, Human beings don't do well in institutions. We like our independence. Everybody does. For every person that's not in a shelter and you talk to them, you find out their personal, very real reason why they're not in a shelter, why they're willing to sleep under a bridge right. in the middle of the winter. Right. It's not, they, they didn't just do it because they enjoy suffering. No. Right. There's a very real reason for them. Yeah. Sometimes they don't want government in their business. Uh, where do they get that from, for crying out loud? You know? <laughs> Here's another way to ask the question. You've got, you've got a best friend, has no connection to homelessness, not, hasn't really run across it in his life, and you're sitting down for dinner. How do you, what do you share about the issue of homelessness with this person and with maybe a secret agenda of opening their heart to being involved more? Like what's, well, I mean, you know, it's important I'd, to know. I'd very likely have a third person there that's homeless, you know. And I think there's no better remedy than than looking into somebody's face and hearing their story. That it's the relational part, right? Again, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not someone that can give you a cogent uh, argument that's gonna sway you. I can tell my stories. I can, I can tell the stories of people I've known that are homeless that- That have moved you. That have moved me. And I think there's, I think there's common ground there, even for people that maybe never would venture into my, my little world, but something they could take back to their Elks Club. And <laughs> Seattle is a city of uh, that's generous and uh, uh, kindly disposed toward social issues, but it's a little bit closed about religion. You know, it's, it's like, what do they say, the least church city in the United States are right up there anyway, which is fine with me, because I think we're just as spiritual in our own way, right? But I think anybody that's resistant to anything along that line, are you, are you willing, are you at least willing to leave the door open, right? And the same kind of approach to life will serve us all well is if we're willing to be open to people that are broken, maybe. Uh, although, you know, I've run into a lot of mentally ill addicts living in houses too. In fact, this is, sorry, I go down these rabbit holes. I remember something happening in downtown Seattle that was caused by a person that lived in a house. And I said, Pioneer Square would be so great if we could just get all these housed people out of here. <laughs> right? <laughs> so true. People I've had, the question I've had a lot is, Aren't you afraid to talk to people that are homeless? And and my my pat answer usually is, I'm more afraid to talk to people inside houses. Oh gosh! <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, yeah. It, and I don't mean that against people inside. I just mean it that where you live doesn't define who you are, right? Like yeah. it doesn't make you a good or bad person because you live inside or outside. That's absolutely true. I've never had. I mean, I shouldn't say that. Rarely have felt threatened by homeless people directly, you know. You know, fear can keep us from doing a lot of the good stuff, right? That's the thing is uh, I'm not going to be afraid, and I haven't been afraid for most of my time, 
And I have, a, I have an explanation. Tell me if you think this is, 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 uh, applies to you. But my experience has been that when you're authentically there for somebody, like really authentically there, not for some right. other purpose, but you're really there for them, even if it's a tough moment for them, they see, they see that in you and they don't take out their pain or their anger on you. They're, they're really, uh, they understand that. Generally, that's true. But, and I, I'm thinking of my, my friends, one of my street ministers, Paul, who was violently attacked a few months ago. Um, there's always that random stranger violence that can happen, you know. And but the thing is, where Inside can you Inside or outside? Yeah, where can you go in the world to be perfectly safe? There is no place, you know. Yeah, I and I'm saying it too under the kind of the heading of the negative stereotype. Yeah, that's right. It says most of the public does see those that are living homeless as dangerous and somebody to be afraid of. They're, and it's just not it's just not the case. They're way more uh, likely to be victims of crime than perpetrators. Yeah, that's been my experience. You said something earlier that really struck a chord with me that I thought is beautiful, and it's just the question, are you willing? I, that's really powerful. Like, it's not, it's, it's, it's just asking, it's not even asking, are you going to do something? Yeah, right, are you willing? And then and, and just being open to uh, the possibility. If you're really open, <laughs> the possibility will land in your lap. Yeah, that's how I think about how how the universe, if you will, how that works. If you're willing, if you're willing, that that's the whole thing. You know, it's the political will that's been a part of this whole thing, right? I think the individual, the will of the individual, to stay open, tolerant, respectful, loving, and applying. You know, and that's where it gets tricky is how do you apply those things to a public policy level and serve the greater good? I don't know. But, I mean, just chasing people around Soto just doesn't seem to be helping anybody. The neighborhood doesn't feel any safer. If they're all off of Utah Street and moved over to 3rd Avenue, what's the point of that, you know? Well, I actually believe, I, I have a theory that says they're actually doing greater harm in the sense that they're just systematically radicalizing the city because they're basically saying, hey, you group of 30 people who are struggling, we're going to now move you in front of this group of businesses, and then we're going to move you in front of this group. And so really, they're just chasing this issue around the city and, and upsetting ever more. And people that have been radicalized by it, business owners and such, they don't just suddenly go back to being okay with the issue of homelessness. Right. Yeah, yeah. They've been turned. Now they're now they have a stand. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the sweeping thing has to stop. Well, have, having seen the impact cuz I'm friends with some of those RV uh, residents and how hard it is for them to stay organized on things like unemployment insurance and uh, social security and are they signed up for their medical stuff properly and you know there's just and are there tabs paid and are, is the vehicle still oh and stuff happens you know there's like uh, freelance vigilantes that come through and one guy uh, claimed that he thinks that a vigilante poured uh, 
diesel fuel into his fuel tank, you know, and they had to pump, you know, 80 gallons of fuel out of the fuel tank and... Being homeless is a full-time job. It changes you too, that's the weird thing. I think people don't realize once you're homeless, it takes a long, long time and if you ever really get over it, you know, it's in the back here. That un uncertainty and uneasiness seeps down into your soul in a way it's hard to describe. That touches on another thing that has astounded me in hearing people's stories is how complicated everybody's story is. And I think, and, and, if, and you know, the quips back that people will scream out of a car window, like, get a job, asshole, or, or yeah. you know, stop being a lazy bum. Or, it, it's crazy how complicated, when you, when you take the time as someone that's living inside, can put their head on a pillow, has a biorhythm in check, and you start to enter into the conversation, you quickly realize, holy crap, this would, I can't figure this out, and I'm college educated, and my life is super loving and happy. And Think how broken some of the people are that are on the street. You know, they've lost family members, pets, uh, just the familiarity of surroundings. There's a the thing, it's interesting, we think they should just be able to move, right? In nursing home care, there's a whole study of thing, a thing called transfer trauma, where you know vulnerable seniors are moved from one nursing care facility to another, or even within an institution, moving them from one room to another room, and how the uh, incidence, uh, the death rate goes up for people that move. We're rooted in neighborhood. As human beings, it's how, how, partly how we're wired. We're, we like having familiar spaces and places. And uh, I, I didn't really understand this. My first year on the job, you know, we had a problematic guy that we were trying to help out, and he was always picking fights. Uh, he wanted to go back to New York City, and he said he could get there from L.A. So we sent him to L.A. on the bus, I think. And he came back two weeks later. I go, okay, so you agreed that you wouldn't come in here anymore. Yeah, I know, I can't come in to Night Watch. Well, why are you still, like, hanging out on the corner right by us? It's as bad as if he was back, you know? And he said, this is my neighborhood. Yeah. He felt, felt safe there. You know, it hit me the other day, too. I, I have friends that are well-off, retired, suburban type. And their son is... Uh, been struggling with uh, homelessness and addiction problems. And, you know, they got close to getting him into long-term treatment program out of, out of the city. But he, he'd been uh, living in a tent in the U District. And that kid had everything going for him, you know. He's one of those guys in the tent long 50th or 40th, 45th and I-5, you know. And the powerful thing is every single one of those people outside is one of those people to somebody else. Yeah, who's missing them. That's part of the reason people don't want to go home. Shame, right? Yep. My conversation with Pastor Rick went on for roughly three hours. Not a surprise. To begin with, he's an extremely easy man to talk with, to be with. 
But more importantly, his lifetime of experiences and insights come from having a front row seat in service to those in need. For those of you that don't know Rick or of him, he is one of those cornerstones in Seattle around advocacy for the homeless. In short, he's a big deal, although he wouldn't tell you that or probably even own up to it. Sitting with Rick, I was hoping to extract some large pearl of wisdom in this constant search for solutions Seattle finds itself in, to hopefully hear some aha moment. Instead, rather than give advice, he beautifully invited us to just be willing, willing to be open, tolerant, and loving, to not let fear keep us from doing the good stuff, as he says. In short, Rick is asking us to be in relationship with each other, especially with strangers and those we're having difficulty with. And through it all, most importantly, to care for each other. You Know Me Now is produced, written, and edited by Tomas Bernatsky and me, Rex Holbein. We'd like to give a heartfelt thanks to Rick for taking the time to speak with us and share his beautiful, positive message. You Know Me Now has a Facebook and Instagram page where you can join in on the conversation. We also have a website at youknowmenow.com where you can see photos of Rick. We also have stories there of other folks we feel you should get to know. Thanks as always for listening.